if you'd like to turn in your Bibles, we're going to be in Luke 2. Uh, and, and Luke 2 opens up with a decree from Caesar Augustus. Now, Caesar Augustus was uh, a Roman emperor who was, by all accounts, uh, he was attractive, he was intelligent, he was very shrewd. He was kind of the ultimate political power player. And all throughout the course of his life, he made a habit of saying, I don't want power, but then shuffling all of the pieces around to get more power and to ensure that he could hold on to it. Uh, and he ended up being appointed emperor for life. Um, he was basically handed all of the power of the Roman Empire and told it's, it, it's yours. And, uh, and even, he even started setting the stage for that to become not a, just, just something for him, but for him and his successors, his, his chosen successor. And that power, the way that he wielded it, ushered in this, this period of peace, the, the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, uh, where basically any country that was worth conquering had been conquered by them. So there was no widespread wars. There was peace throughout the land. And all of this kind of ended up going to his head. Uh, and he began to style himself as the son of the divine, as the son of God. And one of the ways that he ended up exerting control for his empire is taxes. But before you can tax somebody, you need to know who they are and where they are, right? And so this registration that we're going to read about was, was a power play on his part, right? It, it was money grab. He was trying to consolidate power and consolidate money in his own pocket. Uh, so we're going to pick up in Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. So we have Mary and Joseph, these poor travelers, being shuffled about on the whims of the great and the powerful. Right? So Caesar had this need to, to have that power, to have that money, to have that control. And his choice, thousands of miles away, caused Mary and Joseph to travel from their home in Nazareth to Bethlehem away from their family, away from what little bit of support they might have had, all while they're waiting on this baby. There's no more humble, there's no more vulnerable position that they could have possibly been in. And this, this is kind of astounding for us as we read this, right? Because we understand who Mary's baby was, right? We see back in, in uh, Luke 1.32, the angel says to her, he will be great and, be, and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. 
This is the Son of God, the Word, the light of the world, born far from home, far from family, in the most unstable situation possible. But this is the pattern of Christ's ministry, right? says in Philippians 2 that he was in the, the that though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So the life and the work of Christ has always been marked by this voluntary release of power. This voluntary giving up of glory and of honor, and ultimately this giving up of life. All of these things that he had, that he deserved, but he gave them up. And we saw that in the circumstances of his conception. And we see that now in the circumstances of his birth. It was not comfortable. It was not easy. It was not a safe thing. There was no palace. There was no waiting company of servants. No hospital room. But that birth, in humble circumstances, in Bethlehem, allowed the fulfillment of two different prophecies. See, in Micah 5.2, the prophet says, uh, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathath, who were too little among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be a ruler in Israel, one whose coming forth is of old from ancient days. So Micah says, that this Messiah, this Savior, is going to be born in Bethlehem. But then in Isaiah 9, verse 1 says, it describes where this Messiah will come from. It says, There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, in the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Then he goes on to, to describe this Messiah. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace, Everlasting Father. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So he will come from Nazareth, this land by Galilee, but he will be born in Bethlehem. And so we have the orders of this godless, blasphemous emperor setting in motion the trip that would enable the fulfillment of both of these prophecies simultaneously in Christ. This seemingly random, unfair government interference being used to accomplish the plan that was laid down from the very beginning of time. There's a beauty to that, right? God's sovereignty at work. Yes, Caesar was a prideful, arrogant, self-important jerk. And yes, he was abusing his power for his own benefit. But in that, God was using him to accomplish his will, to tell and to fulfill his story. Let's pick back up in, in Luke 2, verse 8. 
And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babies lying in the manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And pause real quick. Remember that Luke is collecting this writing from eyewitness accounts. Now how is it, how is it that he would know that Mary was treasuring all of these things in her heart? that she was gathering them up, that she was remembering them. The only way that he would know that from an eyewitness account is having gone back and talked to Mary himself. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. So the first witnesses then to this Messiah are these shepherds. Now shepherds are socially pretty low on the totem pole. Uh, they would have been uh, ceremonially unclean most of the time because of their work. And in addition, they would have smelled, right? That's, that's what happens when you work with animals. You acquire a certain presence about you. Um, and more specifically, these shepherds were there at night. Right? This was the night watch. This was the third shift. All these shepherds were responsible for was making sure that nothing was eating the sheep. Everything else was going to wait till morning. Right? These were not the best, the brightest, perhaps, the highest in the pecking order. This was about as low as it got. And these angels show up. And they're all surrounded by the glory of God. Now, when angels show up, the response generally is fear. Uh, we don't have any pictures, obviously, of, of exactly what it is that they're supposed to look like. But the response is always fear when an angel is revealed in this way. And when a human being is, is ushered into the presence of God, the response is always this sense of inferiority, right? I think it's Isaiah 6, where he says, Woe is me, I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips. So the shepherds have this sense, then, of their own uncleanness, their own sinfulness, and the perfection and holiness of God. And there's not just one angel, but there's a host, there's a multitude, there's a plethora of them. It's this angel army, right? But it's an army that you don't need to be afraid of because they come bearing good news. 
And that news is that, that your, sign, your Savior, your Messiah, your Lord, your King has come. And there is peace. Peace that exists on this earth for those on whom God's favor rests. This one, he has come to fix what is broken and heal what has been hurt. And here's how you're going to find him. Here's how you're going to identify him. It's a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths like he's supposed to be, lying in a manger, which is distinctly not where a baby is supposed to be. So you're not looking for a palace, you know, with the nice onesie that says Messiah across the, you know, world's cutest Messiah across the front of it. That's not what you're looking for here. You're looking for the humblest baby out there in the poorest situation. And so like Mary did, when the angel said, this is how you're going to know that this is true, they immediately go to verify what it is that they've been told. Right? Mary was told about Elizabeth, and it says that she immediately went to see that what the angel told her was true. And so these, these shepherds, they, they went, they immediately went, they went and they found him, the king of all creation. And the very first ones in line to pay him homage, to bow down before him, were not the highest in society, but the very lowest. Now, at the birth of a baby, the people who are closest to us are generally the first to know, right? You know, if, if we posted on Facebook or took out an ad in the paper before I called my mother, that's not going to go over real well, right? <laughs> you know, that's, that's not how it works. The ones who are closest to us are the ones who get that news first. And so I think in some way we see these shepherds as the first ones to receive the news of the birth of the Savior are in some way closest to God. His earth, they, those shepherds, as his earthly heralds, didn't have power. They didn't have prestige. But they didn't let that stop them, right? They went about proclaiming the coming of this king. This is one of the defining characteristics that we see, right? Of, of a herald, of an ambassador of God. They may be wealthy, they may be broke, but nothing, none of those things are impediments to them proclaiming the advancement of the kingdom. And that's what they are proclaiming, right? The coming of a king and the arrival of his kingdom. But this kingdom is kind of upside down. We talked about it a couple of weeks ago. It's not your standard kingdom. Um, in Luke 1, 51, in, in the Magnificat, Mary says, He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. So we have this, this crazy, beautiful, wonderful, awesome, upside-down kingdom <clears throat> made manifest, made real, made tangible with this little baby. Everything about this is backwards. None of this makes any sort of logical sense. Right? The author of all creation, the one who created all things, in this small, helpless child, dependent on his parents for everything. 
You have the infinite God folded into the very small. You have the ancient of days, the one who created the boundaries and limitations of time, now having a birthday. A true king of the earth, born in obscurity and uncertainty, and heralded not by the rich and the powerful, but by the lowest and the poorest. And so, but this upside-down kingdom is exactly what we need. This kingdom is exactly what we need. But we don't deserve to be a part of it, and we can't. But instead, instead the human condition is to follow another kingdom. In Ephesians 2, Paul writes about it, and he says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which, in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you, has been, you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before him that we should walk in them. So this is the state that we are in. This is the kingdom that we serve. We are lost. We are dead in our sins. And he loved us. He raised us from being dead in our sins to being alive in Christ. But on that first Christmas, love was shown not in a distant sort of way, right? Not like a grandfather who lives in Florida and sends you presents every once in a while, right? But Emmanuel, God with us. And not with us in power, but with us in a weakness and frailty just like ours. So that, so that we might become children of God. So that that which was lost could be found. So that the broken could be healed. So that the lonely could be placed in families. So that the dead could be raised to life again. And those who are the best in this world are not good enough to deserve to be there. But those who are the very worst can be admitted. All the riches in the world can't buy a seat at this table, but even the poorest have a place available for them. A gift that is supremely valuable, but completely free. And that gift comes to us as it said in Ephesians, not by works, not by what we do, but it comes by faith in Christ. Now I want you to imagine 
if you could. Imagine, on Christmas Day, you open up the basement door and start to go down the steps. And you discover that a sewer line is backed up somewhere. And it's not just yours, right? This is a town sewer. And the water level is not just there, but it's rising. And you go through, and you do everything you can. Shop bag, buckets, barrels, you know, whatever. You've done everything you can, and that water level is still coming up. You can't afford to pay somebody. You're at the end. There's nothing you can do about this. And just at that moment, when you begin to despair, the power goes out. Now, what, what runs through your mind in a situation like that? There's nothing. There is nothing, realistically, that, that you're going to be able to do to fix that problem. What matters at that point? What matters? The number of people that you're friends with on Facebook? The number of Christmas cards you've got? how good of a guy you are, how fun it is to be around you, your bank account, your job performance. Does any of that matter? I mean, you might be able to beg someone to plead with them. Maybe. But they're certainly not going to do it because they owe you. This is our condition. Right? This is our condition. We are lost and drowned in the filth of our sin. But the incarnation, the coming of Christ to this world is the start of our rescue. When the next door neighbor, the guy that you've been kind of rude to, the guy that you've always kind of rejected, shows up with his headlamp on. He says, I'm here. i got a trash pump and a generator. We'll get you cleaned up. We'll get you cleaned up. And he stays there. Cleaning up not just the dirty water, but the grime and the trash and the dirt that's down there, that has always been down there. He repairs the walls. He services the furnace. He invites you to come for a shower, for dinner, stay the night. And he comes. He doesn't just send well wishes. He doesn't just give a recommendation for a good guy to call, but he comes wading into the middle of your mess, subjecting himself to your mess, so that you can be free of it. So that you can be free of your mess. Not because you deserved it, but because he chose to. He became, in that moment, wading into your basement, friend with you. And that's what we see in Christ in the manger. God with us. God come to us, taking on himself, our weakness and our frailty, coming with us, doing that job, living that life that we couldn't live. Not because we deserved it, but because he chose it. He chose to love us in that way.
Now, how is it that we respond then to that neighbor? Because we can respond by rejecting him. Nope. Nope, I don't need your help. Everything's good. Bob, you and your trash pump, you just go on home. I got it all, all under control. We can, we can be in denial, right? No, 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 it's not that bad. Everything's fine. I'll just, we'll just close the basement door and go about our, our day. Everything's, everything's all right. We can be underwhelmed, right? We can not understand the depth of the problem that we're in. Wow, it sure was nice of Bob to come by with his trash pump and, uh, and get me cleaned out. Cool. That seems slightly less than it should be, right? That seems slightly less than what our response should be. I think that having been in this situation kind of like that at one point, the only response that we should really have is love, right? Bob's never going to have to shovel out his mailbox again, right? Anytime that I see him in the grocery store and he ends up behind me in line, no, 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 he's, he's going in front of me, right? There is, no, there is no love that I can show to him that isn't too much for what he has done for me. Because I know that what happened there is not something that I deserve. It's not something that I had earned. It's not something that he owed me. But, he's, but that is something that he chose to give me freely of himself. And there is nothing that I can do to repay him. And that is, that is faith. right? To trust that no matter how good things seem to be going for us, to know that you are still in need of a Savior. And to trust that no matter how dark, or how deep, or how desperate, or how lost you are, that he is still there, God with you, saving you from that mess that you have made for yourself. And he demonstrated that he is here with us today by being there with us then. So how will we respond to that? Because we can reject. We can say, nope, don't want it, not interested. We can respond with denial. No, no, no. It's not that bad. Everything's all under control. I got it. We're good. We can say, well, that's pretty neat. Sure, I'm glad that he did that and then live our lives completely unchanged, rejecting, in effect, the nature of what he has done. Or we can fall on our faces in worship, in love, and adoration of our Savior, of our Messiah, of our Redeemer, of our King, as those shepherds did, knowing, knowing that there was no other hope for them knowing that there was no other person who could do what needed to be done for them. Only Christ, our only hope in life and in death. Let's pray together.
Father, it is Christ who is our hope. We forget, we're distracted, we get prideful, but Father, our very breath is thanks to Him. And we pray that on Christmas and the day after and the day after, that a love and an appreciation and a thankfulness and a gratitude for what He has done would grow in us, Father, so that we might be messengers like those shepherds were of hope, of redemption, of salvation. Father, help us to respond with that same sort of joy and abandon and love that they showed. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.